0: Today's episode of RBC Disruptors was recorded before a live audience. Good morning. Welcome to uh, RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse. It's my pleasure to host our monthly conversation about uh, disruption, innovation, and how technology is changing the world all around us. This is our now third annual How to Think Like a Startup session, and we're so lucky to have an amazing growth CEO from the Valley here with us today, Jennifer Tahara, CEO of PagerDuty. Jen, welcome to uh, RBC Disruptors.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So we're gonna talk today about growth mindsets, which is really critical to not just startups and scale up firms, but to big companies like RBC and hear from Jen about what is a growth mindset. So frame for us your challenge as CEO, your company.
1: What is it? What do Um, you do? What does PagerDuty do? We're essentially uh, the de facto real-time platform for action that leverages machine signals and AI to detect an issue, an unplanned issue, something breaking, and orchestrate people to address that issue before a customer feels the pain. So we call that digital operations management. Every every business, every brand that each of you interfaces with, it basically relies on a digital experience, a set of digital assets, whether it's a mobile app, something that happens through your PC, et cetera, or your Mac, and when when that brand experience is not perfect you quit or you delete the app or you move to another alternative you know ride sharing is a good example the car takes too long you just delete you cancel that and you move to the other provider or same thing with food delivery or you name it music etc and you know our job is to one shift people's time particularly the engineering community the developers IT operations support etc from chasing unplanned emergencies to being proactive and even getting to preventative actions to ensure these incidents don't happen and they don't ruin your experience right and Uh, Today, the digital experience is the new brand experience. A company's ability to be hyper-responsive in the micro-moment that matters is often the difference between being the brand champion or being the distant second.
0: PagerDuty was started by uh, a Canadian, Alex Solomon. Yeah,
1: three Canadians.
0: But you come in a couple of years ago, they're they're bringing you in because something's not going quite right. Uh,
1: You know, there's a really special story there. In most cases, what happens in a Silicon Valley or you know any startup is the founder gets going, things are going well for a while, and then the business sort of outgrows the founder, so to speak, and things start to go badly, and then the board pushes the founder out and brings in a new hired gun, and that rarely works, right? And in the case of PagerDuty, uh, we had, the, I think, the great fortune of having three co-founders, who are very humble and uh, very thoughtful, and Alex Solomon, who was running the business at the time I joined in particular, not only recognized that he didn't have the experience to scale the business to its through its next growth uh, cycle, um, but was able to put the company ahead of his own interests in a way that very few people can. And so I think they were looking for someone who uh, had experience, had a strong product orientation, um, was someone who would uh, not only fit into the culture because PagerDuty has this beautiful, wonderful, special culture, but really develop that culture over time. But somebody who wants to win and uh, somebody who could build a highly talented team and uh, you know really help the company live up to its potential.
0: So We're going to talk about the, that, that that culture, the culture of winning, but it's about much more than winning. First, growth mindset. Yeah. Talk a bit about growth and why it matters. Well,
1: what's interesting for me is I like I'm a constant learner. I am motivated by how steep the learning curve is, not by money, not by power. Like I'm like, can I get into something where I can just be learning every day and trying new things? That's what makes me happy. You know, Mark and Rads and, and the team here, I'm constantly asking them questions like what should I do? What do you want me to do, et cetera? Which is a little unusual because a lot of leaders feel like they have to know everything. And a growth mindset is about being open and being humble enough to ask others for their expertise and not have to reinvent fire all the time.
0: We were talking off stage about an idea that you might call the growth card or the growth mindset card, card being candor, ambition, resilience, and diversity, which you'd find in probably every really good, fast-growing company. So maybe we can walk through those four descriptions of your culture. Start with with candor. How do you develop and enhance a, a truly candid culture?
1: Part of it is leading by example like being radically candid in front of people being willing to fail in front of people um i ask stupid questions all the time in front of people but i'm also what was the last stupid question you asked in front of uh, what is this like we were in a product meeting I'm like i don't get it what what is that what do you mean? and they said well it's this event intelligence it does this i'm like yeah but what is it like what's in it how does it work? Like, what's special about it? And so then they have to go into layman's terms, and you can see like half the new people in the room are like, "Oh my god, I don't think she understands technology." <laughs> <laughs> the tech company, and then they realize, sort of, turns. Oh, actually, she does kind of get it, but she wants us to articulate it, right? Because I have to then go out and articulate like what is it everywhere I go, and I think by me asking that question in front of people, I ask a question that often other people are afraid to ask. You know, I, I learned that like when you're a new employee somewhere, you kind of have the license to ask the stupid newbie questions for a little while. so I just pretended to be new for my entire career. and uh, that, that candor freeze gives everybody else the freedom to be inquisitive and, and in, an, in a non-judgmental way, I hope. I think about candor in terms of being super transparent about what our goals are and then making sure that we have the machinery so that everybody in the business understands how we're tracking, how we're progressing against those goals. And if something's not working, like we are going to talk about like what what's not working, but we're not going to blame people in that process. We, because we believe in, in the concept of blameless postmortems and high empathy learning. So when something goes wrong, I don't go, Mark, are you the one who screwed that up? Like, because Mark will then never tell me what actually happened and we won't learn from that process. But I, I think it's, it's, it's really all about shifting the mindset from, you know we used to think that like, if someone is accountable, then when something goes wrong, it's their head on a platter. Right, But that mindset, that's the opposite of a growth mindset, by the way, that mindset actually stymies the institutional learning in a business. And so, Blameless postmortems, blameless retrospectives, really a focus on collective learning and the whole organization moving forward, as a which is a much higher order value for a business and for the end customer than, like, making that one person feel terrible.
0: Talk a bit more about ambition, because it's fine to have a good culture, but you've got, you're, you're growing, like like crazy, up to 100% a year, and you've got insane targets for your teams. That's what your investors expect of you. That's probably what you expect. You want, and they they want. How do you uh, really establish and instill that ambitious culture?
1: Yeah, I mean, to be a CEO in a high-growth company, you have to be part insane, part courageous, super optimistic, kind of all the time, and a really good problem solver and a good leader, right? I mean, those are all the things that sort of come together. And you have to have a vision. And so part of my job is to articulate a vision that is uh, approachable and consumable for every single person in our business. And when I got to PagerDuty, one of the things that was really interesting was we had this high empathy, amazing, like high EQ, humble culture, but we acted like we were the like distant fifth place player in a category we freaking created and we're the leader in and so even just instilling the mindset of a leader in in the business and getting people to claim their success in some ways was was a challenge at the beginning because of how humble we are. Like, And the great thing about being humble is that we're always trying to get better, which is one of the things I like, just the drive for continuous improvement, that like, good is never good enough. We want to be great at what we do. We want a perfect experience for our customers. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves collectively to do that. But that also means that like, you have to stop and celebrate the success. and. In my view, success breeds success. When people feel and taste winning, it makes you want to win again. It doesn't make you want to go home and take a nap.
0: This is a really interesting idea, though, about uh, humble ambition. And I, I wonder if you can connect that to resilience, sort of the R, yeah. R&R card. Uh, we've talked about fail fast. It's become such a kind of cheapened cliche. How do you help your culture be resilient to test and to fail and to, to learn from failure?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, resilience takes a lot of meaning and form in our business because part of what we do as a company is we are up and we are the eyes and the ears and the orchestration when everything else in the world is down. You know, when there are big external failures, people look to PagerDuty to help them understand what's happening and to orchestrate the work to quickly get back to a business as usual state. And so we place a lot of pressure on ourselves and hold ourselves to an extremely high standard around resiliency at scale, being available so that we constantly and continually build trust with our customers. And our customers return that trust back to us all the time by helping us get get tougher and stronger, et cetera. So from a people perspective, resiliency is all about like Allowing teams to try new things and fail when we fail we learn from them Sometimes we even celebrate the big failures like we still celebrate the great incident of 2017 We learned a lot from that and it it was it was a day where we had a a, quite a long disruption After that incident we published and you can go see this on our blog. We published publicly the entire postmortem and we are super transparent when, when we screw something up. Oftentimes, big incidents are self-inflicted. In this case, there was a mix of self-infliction and some stuff that was outside of our control. But we published that entire postmortem so the whole community can learn from our mistake. And, and that's an example of you know, failing in public for everybody else's benefit. If I had a dollar for every lawyer who told me what a stupid idea that is, I like, probably wouldn't still be working. I probably would. Like, <laughs> but, you're taking a risk by sharing your failure, but we think that risk has a huge community payoff that's on a much higher order than any risk that the business entity That's
0: a, That's such a great insight because so many people, too many people see failure as an individual action and, and failure requires, a, it takes a village to yeah. fail. And it's usually more than an individual, more than an organization and smart startups and smart big firms know that they're part of someone else's failure and they should learn from it, but return that, return that empathy. What can large organizations learn from what you're learning in in terms of resilience and failure?
1: I think one thing is you need to empower people in your organization to make the big decisions. So I started my career at Procter & Gamble. I grew up in a militaristic, command-and-control-centric environment where, at the time, John Pepper made all the big decisions, and there were some lieutenants that executed the work, and information that came up, big decision gets made, gets cascaded back down, etc., you know, in a real time micro moment world, like that kind of management system or leadership system just doesn't work anymore. So you need to empower people closest to your customers, closest to the facts, closest to the information, where the action is to make the biggest decisions and reward them when they go well and reward them when they fail and learn. But like it is hard to do, it is really hard as a leader to watch from a distance something very close. When when, you you did that 20 years ago, and you know the right way to do that, right, to let that go. So there's a lot of letting go. And then there's also, like, how do I make investments as a leader that that equip all of our people to make the best decisions? That that sort of empowerment, I think, is a double-edged sword, and you have to be prepared to when there's a mistake, when something goes wrong, to go, okay. All right, yeah, we've made that mistake. Like, what do we learn from it? What are we going to do differently?
0: So the, the D in our growth card is diversity, and PagerDuty is celebrated and studied now for a, a very different approach to diversity, and I'd love you to uh, I- expand on it. But bear in mind, one of the things that uh, bothered me about the Silicon Valley video, as funny as it is, is, is the, the, the sole female character in it is such a caric- negative yeah. caricature, which we all sort of now view as the, da- as the Valley's view of uh, gender and lack of diversity. Help us understand what PagerDuty is trying to do, what you've, what you've instilled, and what you're still up against.
1: Um, look, I, I've had a very fortunate career. I, I was saying to John earlier, like, I, I was always the person that walked into a room and there was nobody in that room that looked anything like me. You know, so I was like the purple squirrel uh, you know, at the zoo. And I, and I just sort of thought that like, that's how it is. Like, it didn't occur to me that that difference was a bad thing, and in fact, sometimes it was a good thing. I, like, my dad coached me early to leverage my difference as an opportunity. Like, sometimes I stand out more, so that creates a platform. I get more attention, so I have the opportunity to be heard, et cetera. So one, uh, we try and think about diversity and difference as upside, not downside. And, and two, diversity and inclusion is just good business. Like, there's just no question not just in my mind, but from a research perspective, all the data points to better business outcomes, better results, better shareholder returns, better customer offerings, et cetera, if you have a diverse workforce, period. Like the facts are there. And diversity is not a women's problem or a men's problem or a people of color problem or a lifestyle diversity problem. It is a leadership problem, it is a business problem. And so from my perspective, I saw PagerDuty as a platform to prove that taking an innovative approach and demanding diversity inclusion in a business will drive better performance. And we will prove everybody who says it's too hard, there's no pipeline, those people don't exist, they don't like tech, blah, 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 that they're just wrong, that those are all just excuses. So So,
0: 50% of your engineering team, as I understand it, and
1: 50% 50 of our engineering leadership team are female. 65% of my leadership team was born outside the U.S. Half of the executive leadership team are female. We have a very rich, diverse culture that you really see come to life in our employee resource groups, which are... It's sister duty, you can imagine what that is, veteran duty. There's rainbow duty, they're one of my favorites. I marched in San Francisco pride with the rainbow duty crew recently. We also have operationalized a number of programs in our hiring process, in our performance management process, in our promotion process, to make sure that not only do we continue to continually improve the diversity of our business, but we also maintain the diversity of our business. So. When I came into the business, I said, I wanna see where we are from a parity perspective in terms of pay, pay equity standpoint. And someone said to me, that's gonna be really hard. That's gonna take a long time. We have a lot of things to do. We need to hire 200 people. I said, I don't care. Like, give me the data, right? So change has to come from the top. You have to demand that you have to demand diverse and inclusive and what, culture what did
0: you learn from the data so
1: what i learned was we were not on par and it took us about seven months through a lot of calibration two performance management cycles and a lot of hiring new people to get to equal pay within one percent job for job every job at PagerDuty. duty and we've just started with gender like there are a whole bunch of other classes that we need to look at so we're by no means done but again it was like an example of proving that this can be done, and it can be done, you know, in a venture-backed company. We're currently not profitable, so we have to invest people's time and system and systems to do this. I'd also say that it's important to start early. So if you have a new org or a new team, or you've like while you're still growing, it's easiest to change the shape of your gender equity or your pay equity it gets harder as your headcount growth flattens but you can still do it through calibration and performance management and leadership the the other thing that we did is if if your leadership teams don't look balanced you have no hope in hell of the organizations underneath them achieving balance so we expect every one of our final candidate slates to be half underrepresented minorities because we know there are at least 2 of 4 final candidates that are underrepresented, we have a 51% chance or greater of one of those candidates getting through. Now, we still have a very high standard Mm -hmm. for every role that we hire, and sometimes our recruiting processes take longer because That slate has to be balanced before we will make a decision. We are asking recruiters explicitly for diverse candidates. We won't work with recruiters that don't demonstrate the ability to connect us to diverse communities. And all that's great, and that helps you with the inbound pipeline. But then you have to have an inclusive organization that people want to work in. So you know, if I come into the office in my my dress and my Pradas, and everybody's wearing T-shirts and hoodies, oh God, that's every day. Um, <laughs> do I really feel Do I really feel welcome? Do I really feel like I belong? Right. And so I think it's also really important that you're honest with yourself and say, this candidate, when they come in for their first day of work orientation, are they gonna see a reflection of themselves in the culture? Right. And if they don't, like, how are we going to celebrate them and embrace them and ensure that they're successful and feel a sense of belonging. And so inclusiveness is not just about diversity. It's about every single person in your business having an equal opportunity to kill it
0: and as you said, you've gone slow on a lot of hiring, as I understand it. There's often vacancies in, in the organization as a result. How do you balance that with the growth challenge? Because your investors want you to be hitting those ambitious targets.
1: Yeah, well, the good news is, you know, really good rule of thumb if you're a manager is hire slow, fire fast, right? There's, there's only a certain amount of new headcount any organization can consume at any point in time. And a lot of these unicorns that sort of tip over are ones that hire super fast and can't keep track of the quality and can't onboard people effectively and then end up in a position where performance you know, suffers. And so having things take a little longer and putting a little more rigor around the candidates that we're hiring has actually, I think, been a net positive for the business. Um, and it also forces us to think about how our teams become more efficient. And frankly, also how we build career architectures for our existing people. A lot of people go straight to hiring when we talk about diversity. But frankly, I'd like to just keep all the awesome people I have. And like, people are worried about Trump's trade war. I'm worried about the Silicon Valley talent war. I mean, it's why we're investing so heavily in Toronto and always have.
0: You mentioned a bit earlier your ambitions for Canada. Maybe you can just briefly tell us what you're looking for. Do, well, you
1: know. I heart Canada. I'm from Minnesota. I'm trying to become an honorary <laughs> Canadian. Again, we were founded by three guys that graduated from Waterloo. We've had a phenomenal relationship with Waterloo. We have, we're, have we I think, the leading company in their intern rotation. We feel like we've been able to punch above our weight at universities like Waterloo because the whole of Silicon Valley is not swimming around in there. They're all busy at Stanford and Berkeley and Cal Poly. And so and one it's been about you know the pool of talent in in this particular market and Waterloo's just one example two it's also been about the ability to build a phenomenal cross functional team so we've been able to find great senior leaders in this market Uh, We have been able to expand from having a pure engineering technology workforce here to having a cross-functional workforce, which meant we bring the ethos of the customer into the culture in the office every day. But I think that Canada, beyond the subsidies and and the help that the Canadian government gives you if you invest in research in this market, uh, the people, just the work ethic, the culture, this is really well-suited to our company culture. And I also believe in being part of something that's on the up, that's accelerating to greatness, as opposed to like being at the top of its game and trying to stay there. And so I feel like there's still so much potential in Canada. And I want to be part of that growth story.
0: That's a, that's a great message. It's uh, so easy to see why, why Jennifer celebrated in the Valley as one of the great uh, growth leaders. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us at, uh, at RBC Disruptors. Thanks to everyone in the audience and on WebEx thank and you. Facebook My for uh, joining us as well. Thanks for downloading RBC Disruptors. Our show this week was produced and edited by Peter Henderson. You can reach us at rbcdisruptors at rbc.com and join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag rbcdisruptors. I'm John Stackhouse. Thanks so much for listening.